0: This is Guns and Butter.
1: There's something happening, yeah. Yeah, yeah. What it is ain't exactly clear. There's a man with a gun
2: over there. That's what I say is that, like solving 9-11, the deception that changed the world, we are now living through a period in which deception is the main tool. We are the victims of this deception. We are the target of the deception. And, and so we have to understand that we are being lied to the whole State Department and the whole upper echelon of the U.S. government. It's just completely based on deception and lies. And 9-11, as I said, is the core crime. It's the Achilles heel of the whole thing. We have every right in the world to demand the truth and the justice for 9-11. I'm
0: Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Christopher Boleyn. Today's show... 9-11 and the Politics of Deception. Christopher Boleyn is an independent researcher, investigative journalist, and author. Along with research and writing, he has worked as an editor and translator. Upon graduation from high school, he spent three years traveling extensively throughout Europe and the Middle East, finally settling in both a kibbutz in Israel and in Oslo, Sweden, where he studied Egyptian, Biblical Hebrew and Norwegian at the University of Oslo. He is a graduate of the University of California in History with an emphasis on Israel-Palestine. His travels and studies of German, Spanish, Norwegian, Swedish, Hebrew, and Arabic languages have helped him analyze international politics and events. He is the author of Solving 9-11, The Deception That Changed the World, and Solving 9-11, The Original Articles. Christopher Boleyn, welcome.
2: Thank you, thank you.
0: Why is understanding the deception of September 11, 2001, important today?
2: Well, it's very important to understand that we were, the nation and the world, was deceived by the events of September 11. First of all, it's important to understand that the deception um, began with the attacks on, on 9-11, and has continued for the nearly 13 years since. And it's important because 9/11 was a was a spectacle of terror that was meant to change um, the United States of America and to change the world, to to reset the agenda, to to drag the United States into war in the Middle East on a long term basis. And now. Um, that model, the same model that was employed um, with the terrorism of, of 9/11, is being used time and time again. This is the model of false flag terrorism. So that when we see um, the recent events, for example, uh, the shooting down of the plane, the Malaysian plane over the Ukraine, for example, or the uh, the beheadings by this Islamic State organization in Iraq and Syria, what we're seeing is we're seeing once again, um, terror being used as a, as a tool to affect public opinion. And the understanding of the deception of 9-11 is, is essential uh, for Americans and for all free people in this, in this world because um, we have to realize that the government that we have in the United States now is maintaining the deception That means that they are maintaining the lies about the um, events of September 11th in which 3,000, you know, Americans were killed. And a free people cannot allow a government that um, facilitates the mass murder of its citizens. That simply is unacceptable. And so it's not something that we can um, run away from or we can um, pretend that, uh, you know, we can stick our head in the sand and that it's not going to get us. That is not the, the mature thing to do, that's not the wise thing to do, and that is not an option for us. Because if we allow, if we allow ourselves to um, be deceived about what happened on September 11th, um, we are the ones who will pay the price for being enslaved to that lie.
0: And, and what do we need to learn and take away from understanding what really happened on September 11th, 2001? What is it that people need to understand
2: about those events? Well, we need to understand, uh, basically, who's behind nine eleven, the people behind it, and how they did the false flag terrorism, and how the deception was then sold to the American people um, by the media. Because, um, as I said, this is a model, this is a, a pattern that is now being used with regularity. Um, you know, the, the incidents that we're seeing now... Thank God for small favors are not of the magnitude, but um, the deaths of hundreds of people on a Malaysian airplane that was shot down over Ukraine, or the deaths of uh, um, the journalists and 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 people who are killed um, in the terrorism in Iraq. Uh, it's the same terrorism, and false flag terrorism has been used all along since nine eleven. For example, as I said, the bombings in Iraq, scores of people have been killed every week. In the last 10 years or so in Iraq, in false flag terrorism that is designed to create sectarian division, that's to create animosity between the various groups of people in Iraq. Um, the long term goal being the sectioning or the, the balkanization of Iraq into a, a country with uh, three statelets, three mini statelets, and so that Iraq will cease to exist as a nation just as Yugoslavia ceased to exist or the Soviet Union ceased to exist. But um, what you wind up with is is smaller little statelets that are um, feuding with each other and it can be more easily exploited and controlled. We have to understand how it was done so we can see how it's done time and time and time again now and in the future. It will be done.
0: Well, you mentioned the bombings in Iraq. These are presented in the press as Iraqis bombing each other constantly. Are are you indicating that you think these bombings are being set off by foreigners, for instance?
2: Oh, yes. There's no question about it. Many of these bombings are reported uh, one time. You know, there's a bombing and scores of people are killed. And somebody comes forward and says uh, that it was a suicide bomber. Um, but nine times out of 10, these are not suicide bombers at all, but they are Cars that are parked, you know, with explosives in them that are then remotely detonated. You know, early on in the Gulf War or in the the occupation of Iraq, there was an incident in Basra, in the south of Iraq, where a couple guys dressed up like um, Shiite fighters drove by a a demonstration, I think it was, and they um, opened fire on the demonstration, and they were followed by the police in Basra, and they were captured. And when the turbans were unwound and the and the disguise was taken off, it turned out that they were two British SAS officers, two British commandos, who were dressed up like Shiite fighters from Iraq. And what's interesting is that their car was um, carrying explosives and, and detonators and and things of that nature that were prepared for planting car bombs. And when they were when they were captured, the the uh the Iraqis wanted to put them on trial for terrorism. I mean, naturally, that's what they were. But um, the British military actually bulldozed their way into the prison and, at gunpoint, extracted the two British soldiers before they could be tried.
0: Yes, I remember that incident. That was a number of years ago. Uh, yes. That was that was very uh, telling about yes. Iraq was not just invaded and bombed. I mean, it's been destabilized for for many, many years. And like you say, it looks like the ultimate goal, of course, is to divide it up into three pieces.
2: Yes. And that's what I think this uh, Islamic State organization, that's all about. The the terrorism that these people are committing in in Iraq and Syria, this Islamic State or ISIS, terrorism that they're doing is being done basically to shock and horrify Western people uh, United States and European allies, so that we will allow our governments to take, you know, military action and uh, bring us back into uh, uh, military activities in Iraq. You know, we thought we were out of there, but now we, we're going to find ourselves being dragged back in, and being dragged back in in a way to solidify the fragmentation of that country. And in in Ukraine, what it seems to be happening is that the United States and these nato partners are not really looking for a shooting war with russia which would be of course a disaster for everybody but what they're looking to do it looks to me is that they're trying to use propaganda and false flag terrorism and this crisis in ukraine which was actually started and caused largely by the united states state department um... they're trying to use that that crisis to vilify putin so that they can usher in regime change in Russia, which is what they would really like to do and put in a new government there. And, and so, you know, we're seeing time and time again the same method being applied as was applied on September 11th. So if you want to understand how that method works and, um, you know, have some clarity of understanding about what's going on in our world, it's really essential that you understand the deception of 911.
0: Right. And um, before we leave the subject of ISIS... It's pretty well established, even in some of the mainstream media, that that group, uh, whatever they are, they've come out of Syria and they've been supported uh, all along by the Western Military Alliance, right?
2: Yes. And what's really, really shocking is that John McCain, Senator John McCain, went to Syria in May 2013 on a uh, some sort of secret-type trip, but there were photographs taken when he was there. He met with um, the men, uh, the fighters, who actually are the founders of this organization that we're now bombing, ISIS. And uh, there's a photograph of, of John McCain meeting with these people, and he's speaking with the man who is alleged to be the uh, founder of ISIS. And And ISIS had just been created at that time. And what it shows is that John McCain, who is like... The uh, cheerleader for the uh, Zionist war agenda in Congress, along with um, Lindsey Graham. These two senators, um, they're pushing the Congress to support the war agenda everywhere possible. And they're, they're itching for war. Of, of course, they're not going to fight, but they're itching for war with Iran, and they really are the war hawks. John McCain should really be investigated for his contact with these. Iraqi or Syrian fighters, because it, it seems to be treasonous activity, I would say, to be uh, meeting with people and supporting people who are um, in the business of beheading American journalists and fighting the United States of America.
0: Well, absolutely. And you've uh, mentioned a photograph of John McCain with some of these people. I've seen several photographs uh, of mm-hmm. him meeting with these people, the latest one in the living room with, I believe, the head of ISIS. Was yeah. or is somebody named Al Baghdadi or something? He went under yes. another name yes. previously, and and there's John McCain meeting with him and others. I mean, it's very clear.
2: Yes, yes. Well, that 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 man that he's talking to has a lot of names, and he's um, speaking to John McCain and uh, Terry Masson, who is in Syria uh, from Voltaire.net. He. Um, he came out with an article a few weeks ago in which he uh, said that this man that John McCain is speaking to is this man you said and that he is, in fact, the founder of ISIS. And the the way it's understood is that all of these, these militias that were fighting in Syria and that have expanded into Iraq um, are, in fact, sort of morphing and, and overlapping with each other in many ways. So it's like they are all basically calling for the same thing, and that is Islamic Caliphate is what they want. And it's very clear that uh, John McCain was supporting those people and urging them on and asking for U.S. support for them as if, as if somehow um, one could distribute the rifles to people and uh, get them to sign on a, uh, some sort of contract that they will only use it for this and this and this. You know, and it turns out that these people are the are the very ones who are killing children and and committing all kinds of terrorist atrocities in Iraq and Syria.
0: Well, also, and this leader, I believe his name was Al Baghdadi, but I don't have it written down. Uh, wasn't he the same person that was uh, photographed in Iraq giving a sermon while he was wearing a Rolex watch?
2: Yes, yes, uh, he has several different, many different names because they they have a lot of different names. And also there's a there's a ten million dollar you know warrant or uh, reward out for this man's arrest. And that is a State Department reward um, that has been put on this man's head for uh, several years. I don't know exactly how many years, but he was wanted by the US. State Department at the time that John McCain was talking to him. And what I did is i I contacted John McCain's office in Washington and asked them, uh, sent him a picture and asked them to identify this man in the lower left corner, in the dark shirt, with whom John McCain was talking. And they couldn't do that. They couldn't give me a name for this person. So I said, you know, I don't understand what kind of security you do or what kind of vetting you do of people that are going to meet with John McCain. You know, John McCain goes to Syria to a war zone and meets with fighters from the opposition, you know, militias, And, and he doesn't even know who he's talking to. And, you know, the fact that Sean McCain's office could not identify this man, other than calling him a fighter, um, indicated to me that they did not want to tell me who this man was, and that most likely um, Terry Masson's identification of this man as being the current caliph that's, that's when you see him wrapped up in his robes and giving a speech in a, in a mosque in Iraq. Um, that is the same man except that he's wearing, of course, the the turbans and the the robes and has, you know, a longer beard. But it's the same person.
0: Well, exactly. And uh, there's some great pictures there on Voltaire.net. Thierry Maison has Mm -hmm. written this, as you said, this this article. I'm speaking with investigative journalist and author Christopher Bolin. Today's show, 9-11 and the Politics of Deception. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Have you investigated both Malaysian Airlines' strange mishaps? And if so, what have you discovered? The first, of course, Malaysian airline disappeared. And then yeah. we have this uh, shoot down over eastern Ukraine. Now, you've done a little yes. work on this, haven't you?
2: Yes, 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 I have. And the, um, the disappearance of the plane, the first plane, 370, was uh, a very odd thing. It's of course a very odd thing because planes like this don't just disappear. And what I found most intriguing about that first incident was that um, as soon as it disappeared, there were two comments, you know, posted on the internet. One by Rupert Murdoch, um, the Fox News mogul, and the other by uh, former head of Israeli l security in New Jersey, and. The man in New Jersey, the Israeli man in New Jersey, said that uh, the plane the plane had probably been snuck off and hijacked and taken to um, Pakistan, landed in Pakistan or someplace like that, or Iran, and was being converted into a uh, a bomb, a flying bomb, and this plane would then be used to attack um, a high-rise tower in Tel Aviv. So he was predicting that this plane had been attacked uh, hijacked by Islamic terrorists of the Iranian sort, in his mind, and that they would then use the plane to attack Tel Aviv. And then, uh, at the same time, Rupert Murdoch came out with a, with the, basically the same analysis, that the plane had been hijacked and taken to Pakistan and was someplace up there being prepared to be used as a weapon. Well, you know, I thought that was very interesting and indicated that, you know, when the Israelis are saying things like that, they're creating sort of an idea in people's minds. So there's such a thing were to happen, they'd say, see, look, I told you so. But what happened then was uh, I found out that um, an identical plane, to the missing Flight 370, an identical former Malaysia Airlines plane, had been, had been bought by a company in Florida, a George Soros-related company in Florida, for disassembly. And this, this company is called G.A. Telesis in Fort Lauderdale. And according to them, the plane had been bought in July of last year and taken to the United States for disassembly and, you know, for the parts to be sold and and whatnot. But the fact of the matter is that that plane was not disassembled in the United States, as their press release said, but the plane was was then sent to France in October of 2013 and stayed there for a little while and then was flown to Tel Aviv and then was parked in a hangar at Ben Gurion Airport in Tel Aviv. Now, the question was then, why was a Malaysia Airlines plane identical to the missing Boeing 777, um, why, why was this plane sent to Israel? And what were the Israelis doing with this plane? And then we talk about the plane that was shot down over Ukraine. Now, um, the fact that, that these are Malaysian airplanes that are all being affected suggests to me that somebody is trying to bring Malaysia Airlines down, and this is kind of an uh, attack on Malaysia and the Malaysian brand. Because the Israelis may be, be doing this because the Malaysian government had an had a, uh, international tribunal of justice in which they found the state of Israel guilty last year, I think in November, of committing acts of genocide against the Palestinian people. So this may be a form of payback, against the Malaysian government for having done this you know tribunal and on the other hand we have to consider that when the Israelis have a working model of a Malaysian Boeing 777 they may have used that um, as, a, as a as a as a practice of dummy that they could they could see exactly how they could hack into a plane of that type of that company with that avionics in it and and change the flight data and basically how they could remotely hijack a plane a malaysian airlines plane and the best way to be able to hijack a malaysian airlines plane is to have one that you can practice on so it it seems to me that that's actually why the israelis have that plane in the in the hangar they're not disassembling it they didn't need the parts they don't need the work but they needed to have a working copy that they could practice with for what happened with the missing plane or the hijacked plane wherever it went
0: so well, now that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that now uh, mm-hmm. now this missing now this uh, Malaysian Airlines plane that was sent to France and then ended up in Israel, that was mm-hmm. there, you're saying, well before the disappearance of the Malaysian airline.
2: Yes, about three. It was. It was there. It, it reached there, I think, in early November or early December of 2013. I don't remember exactly the date, but it was November, December. It arrived in Tel Aviv, and I think it was in November, early November, and the, the plane went missing in, wasn't it, March? Yeah, March, March 18th or something like that um, of this year. So they've had that plane, they had that plane in Tel Aviv for a good three or four months before the uh, Flight 370 went missing.
0: Yeah, very hard to understand exactly what is going on here with these Malaysian planes because then of course Israel works very closely with the US. Now, yes. Now the now this Malaysian airline uh that got shot down over eastern Ukraine, do you think these yes. incidents are related?
2: Yes, 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 yes. I think that the Malaysia Airlines that was shot down over Ukraine was targeted um, because it was a Malaysian, another Malaysian plane, and that it, it was being used as a sacrificial lamb. Um, and so it was, for example, you know, we know that it was not meant to fly over the the war area, but it was it was diverted. It was diverted north north of its usual route. And so it was. It was made to fly directly over Donetsk in this region where the fighting is going on. And we know that um, we can see from the wreckage that the plane, the cockpit of the plane, was shot up. was was shot up with you know a heavy machine gun and, and cannon fire. And we also know from the from the Russian government that a uh, Sukhoi 25, I think it is, it's is su 25 a, a, a military plane of Soviet make was in the in the immediate proximity of the plane before it went down. and And all of these things indicate uh, that that the plane was diverted, made to fly over an area, and that it was then shot down in the air um, and 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 then the idea was to blame this on the rebels. But the rebels didn't have the capacity, first of all, they don't they don't have uh, sukhoi 25s to fly around. They don't have planes of their own, and the evidence strongly indicates that it was not downed by a ground-to-air missile. But that was the—that's the explanation that was grasped upon. And—and and what's amazing is that we have not yet been given any real information from the investigation in, in Holland. They've had—they—they were—they were supposed to give us some information by now, but they still haven't done that. And—and and the Russian information regarding the, what the Russians have said about this uh, shoot down strongly indicates that a a Ukrainian a Ukrainian fighter plane was involved. But then the question gets even a little bit murkier. I call it a, a, a possible false flag within a false flag because the Israelis also have access to Sukhoi twenty fives because with the state of Georgia in the Caucasus, Israel upgraded many of these uh planes to make them um, more modern fighters. So there there have been planes in the skies of Ukraine that have not been necessarily Ukrainian, if you understand what I mean, because planes have been inserted from other neighboring republics. And so the skies over the Ukraine on the day this plane was shot down, the people flying the Sukhoi-25 may very well not have been Ukrainians. But it's interesting that the, the prime minister of Ukraine, the Yatsenyuk, the person who was put in power by Victoria Kagan from the U.S. State Department, he wanted to resign about five days after the plane was shot down, but they didn't let him. He wanted to resign immediately the week after the plane was shot down. and so it's you say to yourself, well, why did he want to get out of the government so badly so quickly after this plane was shot down? was it was he was he getting cold feet? but he was actually made to stay he's been made to stay in power.
0: Well, I remember the announcement of his resignation who compelled him to stay in power?
2: Well, they you know uh, I guess he was he was talked to by the people who put him in power. And then they said that, you know, the uh, parliament or the Congress, whatever they have there in Ukraine, uh, simply refused to accept his resignation. They they said, no, you cannot resign. So it's like he wanted to get out. He said, I, I'm resigning. But, you know, he was not allowed to resign.
0: Well, now, where is the evidence? Now, you have said that yeah. there were uh, jets, let's say military mm-hmm. jets, in Ukraine— mm-hmm. That were not necessarily part of the Ukraine military; mm-hmm. that they were brought in from other countries. What is the evidence for mm-hmm. that?
2: Well, there have been numerous reports of 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 uh, fighter jets being flown into the Ukraine from other neighboring republics. There's there's Moldavia. There's other places, Azerbaijan and and Georgia, and and that are in the proximity that also have fighter jets, and and there have been numerous reports that these fighter jets being flown by foreign pilots have been involved in fighting against these uh, rebels. The thing is is that we have to understand about the Ukrainian conflict is that it is an artificial conflict that was imposed on the Ukraine. Um, It has nothing to do with the uh, European Union or the people's desire to be in the European Union or anything like that. It has to do with foreign fighters and foreign militias being cultivated in the Ukraine and being led by foreigners. If you look at the, the February attack, February 20th, 21st attack, that led to the government going, going into exile, the Yanukovych government going to exile, it was led by a, a neo-Nazi group called Svoboda. And these, these neo-Nazi types were being led by Israeli soldiers, who were not Ukrainian, so these Israeli soldiers had come to the Ukraine, and then they are leading, they are leading neo Nazis in an attack against the elected government of the Ukraine. You know what kind of conflict are we talking about here? And then we know that the United States has sent uh, contractors and people of that type, um, these people who are working sort of off the record, to support the the Kiev government, and and yet the United States has the of course, the Gaul, to tell the the Russians that that you have to prevent any Russians from going and fighting with the rebels. But the the government that we established, the government put in power, the Yatsenyuk government, and the, the government that we put in power in Kiev, that we I say the U.S. State Department put in in, in power, is an anti-Russian government people have to understand that this is not a government that is meant to govern the whole Ukraine. This is a government that has an anti-Russian element to it. They do not want Russian to be used as a spoken language in Ukraine, and they are strongly opposed to the the Russian-speaking people in the Ukraine, in the Donbass region, for example. Tymoshenko, the woman that has the braids, the former prime minister, she even called for the, 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 the Russians to be nuked, to be, you know, bombed with nuclear bombs. And, and to kill them all. And, and Yatsenyuk says there's no place in the Ukraine for the Russian language. Well, you know, it's something like 30% of the population, or 20, 30% of the uh, population in Ukraine is Russian-speaking. So, obviously, the United States put in power a government that was bound to create civil strife. That was, that was a given. And so then you say, well, why are they doing that? Do they really want to separate, you know, do they want to balkanize the Ukraine? Or do they just want to create strategic tension against Russia that they can then use to, like, try to affect regime change? And I think that's what they're trying to do. But the Ukrainian the Ukrainian people are paying the price.
0: I'm speaking with investigative journalist and author Christopher Bolin. Today's show: 9/11 and the Politics of Deception. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. And then there's also the issue of uh, making deals with the IMF and the World Bank, getting them in there, making deals with Europe and the United States, etc. economic ties with the West rather than uh, economic
2: ties with the East. Precisely. And it, you see, it's, it's exactly what, what NATO and the United States have done in the Baltic states, in Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. Um, even in Poland and and all of these countries, former Warsaw Pact countries and former republics of the Soviet Union, um, the United States, Georgia, for example, the United States has followed a policy since since you know the early nineties, um, in which they have cultivated anti-Russian sentiments in these countries that are border borderlands to Russia, and in which you know a significant percentage of the population is Russian speaking. Um, like I saw it in Estonia, it was very clear. In Estonia, they have created a, a kind of nationalism, a racism, a chauvinism that is anti-Russian and anti-foreigner. And this is, this is very destructive for the economies of these countries, because these countries are very much integrated with, with the former Soviet Union, and that's their natural trading partner, has always been their natural trading partner. And if you if you cut off their ties with Russia, well, they're going to lose a lot of business. And that's what that's what's happened. And at the same time, the United States military has created um, stormtroopers of skinheads. Like you know, that's what they, they've created cadres of skinheads in these countries. You know, they get young men who have nationalistic feelings and then they cultivate them into being sort of like neo Nazi types. And then they use these people as um, gangs of black shirted thugs, you know, just like in the, in just like in the thirties in, in Germany. And, and this is, this, these are the people that, for example, they used in Ukraine to overthrow the government. That's who they used because they have created this group, then they use it as, a, as stormtroopers, you know, in this case led by an Israeli.
0: Uh, now you're talking about it is Israelis involved in, in the overthrow of the democratically elected government of Ukraine. Yes. Now, were there news reports? It does seem to me that I did see something about this. Now, where are you getting the information mm-hmm. about this?
2: No. Well, this it was all it was reported in the Israeli media, probably, uh, uh. probably first. But no, it was it was reported. I, I've written about it extensively, and then uh, when it happened, when it was revealed, um, the Jewish press and the Israeli press uh, did not run away from the subject, and they later identified uh, one of the guys as being a rabbi. Um, But what they were is that there have been many immigrants to Israel from the former Soviet Union. And so, you know, there are many, many Russian-speaking Israelis today who um, were born in, in the Soviet Union, may have been born in Ukraine in the Soviet Union. And these people were then ready to go back to Ukraine and to lead the assault on the elected government of Kiev on February 21st and 22nd with force. And I have a photograph of the, the Israeli guy who, who led the attack. He's wearing some sort of mask and all that, but he was a member of an of a elite group of soldiers in Israel. And so that means, you know, because he's under 55, he's, he's still an active member of the Israeli military. And an Israeli man is a member of the military until he's 55 years old and they go back every year for a month of service or something like that. So that means that he is, he's not a former Israeli soldier. He's an active Israeli soldier. And yet he's over there in Ukraine leading uh, a gang of, of neo-Nazi stormtroopers to overthrow the elected government of Ukraine. And the United States is supporting this? Well, not only supporting it, our government engineered the whole thing. Victoria Nuland was overheard, or her, her phone call was, was taped, in which she bragged, or she, she said... That who will be the the uh, the next prime minister of Ukraine two weeks before this incident even happened? What did she call him? Yatsenyuk. It? She she called him well. She called him Yats. Yes. Yats, which is short for Yatsenyuk. Uh, her name is uh, Victoria Newland Kagan. She's actually Mrs. Robert Kagan, and the Kagan family is is a very important family in U.S. foreign policy in the last thirty years because these are the the same people. Donald Kagan is the father, Robert Kagan is the son, and Frederick Kagan. And these are the people who founded the Project for the New American Century, which um, basically was trying to compel Bill Clinton to invade Iraq and overthrow Saddam Hussein. But then when he didn't do it, then they pushed with this, uh, this uh, paper and, and called for regime change in Iraq, but then in the same paper, it's a Project for a New American Century paper that they came out with in the 2000, they said that whether Saddam Hussein was in power or not was not really the issue, that the United States forces had to go in and occupy Iraq whether Saddam Hussein was there or not. That's very important, and that's, that's exactly what happened, isn't it? And and Mrs., you know, Mrs. Robert Kagan is Victoria Newland, And so it's like this Kagan family, which is a neocon Zionist family, has been leading the United States into wars for the last 20 years. And yet, and yet these are they're unnecessary wars that are actually wars of aggression. So if, if there were any proper justice in America, the Kagan's would be held on trial for um, conspiring to engage in a war of aggression, which is a war crime.
0: Yes, and they're often referred to, I've heard them referred to as the Kagan's. You know, I that's, just,
2: another way, yeah. that's
0: another way to pronounce it. I just want to uh, put that yeah. out there in case people are used to hearing yeah. it pronounced Kagan and they don't recognize it mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. your pronunciation. Well, you've brought up the Project for the New American Century. Retired Army General Wesley Clark talked about a policy coup having been carried out by the signatories to the Project for the New American Century, or PNAC, which would entail the attack and destruction of the governments of seven countries in the Middle East. What is your assessment of General Clark's statement? He was apparently told this by, by someone in the Pentagon.
2: Yes, and I think he, he, he was told that, uh, I think he said a week or so after 9-11, shortly after 9-11. And I think that he's uh, being very honest. I think he's being very honest because he's letting us know um, that this is, in fact, the, uh, the plan. And, and as you can see from the way he describes it, um, the, the military didn't design this plan. This is a plan that was being uh, foisted onto the Pentagon by people like Wolfowitz and, and Richard Perle and these, these neocon policy advisors, they call them, um, like the Kagans. And so this is, this is what I call the Zionist War Agenda. It's an agenda. It's a list of countries that need to be invaded where they want to see regime change and where they ideally want to see balkanization. And balkanization is exactly what we saw in Yugoslavia, that, that sectarian, sectarian strife is fomented um, by terrorism, often by terrorism, and, and then you, you create a civil war situation in which you can exploit these sectarian differences and break the country up into pieces along confessional lines or sectarian lines. And, and that's exactly what we've seen now in Iraq. You know, you, you have to say to yourself, wait, what kind of policy does the United States have in Iraq? When the American government talks about it, they say that they they respect the territorial integrity of Iraq or whatever country. But everything they do, it seems designed to violate that or to, to um, you know, to work Against that policy, because now, after ten, ten or twelve years of of being engaged in, um, in we've been engaged in Iraq for a long time, but after, since the invasion of two thousand and three, everything that has happened has led to this fragmenting of the country along these ethnic and sectarian lines. So it's like either our policymakers are incompetent, or they're not being honest with us, and I think it's the latter. They tell us one thing and do another. That's what we see time and time and time again. We see it in Gaza. We see it in Palestine. We see it in Afghanistan. We see it in Iraq. And that's what I'm saying, is that we are being deceived. We are, we are constantly being deceived by our government because our government realizes that they can pull the wool over our eyes. They can tell us one thing and do another. And and that is that is really not a functioning democracy.
0: Well, with regard to the Project for the American Century, of course, you, you mentioned mm-hmm. uh, Zionist... Um, policy makers within mm-hmm. the Pentagon, but we've also got Cheney and Rumsfeld and a whole battery of Americans mm-hmm. that uh, mm-hmm. were just as big a part of this as anybody else, right? I mean, Rumsfeld mm-hmm. was the Secretary of Defense. It it seems mm-hmm. to me, my recollection okay. of um, uh, General Wesley Clark's uh, a commentary there was that the person in the Pentagon that told him about the plans to attack seven countries in the Middle East. This was a memo that came
2: down from Rumsfeld. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's very likely. And but the, the thing is, is that what you see in a situation like um, Rumsfeld and Cheney is that these people, like Dick Cheney, had. Um, strong zionist advisors uh... libby lewis for example was his chief of staff as vice president and so these people like uh... rumsfeld and cheney they they themselves are not uh... very knowledgeable about you know all the demographics and and geography here but they have advisors who who lead them into these directions you know they are advised the, the uh... president lives in a in a kind of an information bubble and in that sense it's very important who his advisors are and so like when you have people like rami manuel as advisor to president obama for example for the first term you have you have a person who is directing everything that the president sees the information that he gets the people who talk to him and so that's the way that is the way that that these kinds of policies are put into effect um, you know, it's just like, for example, on 9/11, the Attorney General in charge of the Department of Justice was um, Ashcroft, John Ashcroft. But John Ashcroft was not the person who who made the decisions about what to do with the evidence and the prosecution of 9/11. That all fell onto his assistant, Michael Chertoff. And and it's 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 like the Attorney General Ashcroft is just there for window dressing. The person who's making the executive decisions that affected the the cover-up of 9-11 was being done by his assistant. And, you know, most people didn't really know who his assistant was, and, you know, this name isn't talked about. But, but Michael Sheratoff, who made all the decisions about the destruction of evidence of 9-11, is an Israeli citizen and the son of a Mossad agent. You know, so, I mean, we have a real problem in the United States government with all these Zionists who have... You wouldn't even call them... That. They don't have dual loyalties. Their loyalty is the state of Israel. Their loyalty is to Zionism. And they are basically like Trojan horses that have gotten into high positions of power and are, and are using their influence in the government to, to bring America into the Middle East to fight wars for Israel. That's basically what's happening.
0: I'm speaking with investigative journalist and author Christopher Bolin. Today's show... 9-11 and the Politics of Deception. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, don't we also have a lot of Christian Zionists in the government? I've heard about this in the military.
2: Yes, yes. John Ashcroft is a good example. Um, I think Bush was another example. Uh, yes, this is, this, is a, this is a huge problem because Zionism is uh, like a false prophecy. It's, it's like a, a false messiah. And the first victims of this, of this uh, false prophecy are, in fact, the Jewish people who have been made to support it or who have been, um, you know, directed or pushed to Israel, whether they wanted to go or not. Um, and these people are like the sacrificial lambs of this false prophecy because they have been indoctrinated into something that is, you know, false according to their religion, and false according to its, its potential. It's a, it's a very evil ideology. But just to give you an example, uh, in 1948, when the of Israel was created, they began a... Mossad began... The Mossad was created as the Immigration Department to bring people to Israel. That's, that's what it was all about. And what they did is they went to Iraq, and they, they put bombs in the synagogues of the Jewish community in Baghdad. So that the people, the Jews of Baghdad, would feel threatened and go to Israel, and this is the kind of thing that they did there, and they did in Yemen. They simply took all of the Yemenite Jews and flew them to Israel. So these these were not people who wanted to go to Israel. They didn't want to be Zionists, but they were forced to go there. The Yemenites and the Iraqis, and in the case of the Yemenite operation, in which thousands of Yemenite Jews were brought to Israel secretly. Um, Michael Chertoff's mother was involved in that operation,
0: right? And a lot of what's going on, actually, is uh, in the Middle East, is uh, much more controversial in Israel itself than it is here in the United States, isn't that right?
2: Oh yes, absolutely. Well, yes, yes. The, because the Israelis are, you know, they're in the middle of it, and you know, they're the ones. They're the ones who have to go in. And uh, fight in these places. You know, if the government tells them to go to Gaza, they have to go to Gaza. If the government tells them to go to the Golan Heights, they have to go there. You know, so their lives are on the line. In the United States, however, the the media, it so distorts the reality of the Middle East, whether you're watching Fox News or CNN, any, any television program at all. The distortion of the Middle East is so extreme that... Um, it's not possible to understand the Middle East or make sense of it if you're only informed by television, because you're not getting the information you need. You know, you won't understand it. And it's really important for people to um, well If they read my book, for example, um, they get some of the history. They get some of the history, the Zionist history. And and what what people need to understand is that the the state of Israel, as it is constructed, as it works. Is a, is a situation where you have uh, a criminal state operating uh, with impunity. And, you know, it, it, it's very clear for people who uh, maybe watched TV in July because they would have seen the the Israeli aggression in Gaza when when, you know, a nation that is nuclear-tipped and has the latest U.S. military technology basically flew over an open-air prison, which is Gaza, 25 miles by five miles in diameter, I mean in size, and, and basically just bombed and bombed and bombed people's houses. Eighty-five percent of the targets of the Israeli bombing campaign in July and August in Gaza were civilian houses. Well, in anybody's book in the world, that is wrong, that is unethical, that is improper, that is criminal. And yet, And yet the U.S. government and the American media don't criticize Benjamin Netanyahu. Don't criticize Israel for doing these war crimes, but instead they they focus on on the alleged crimes of Putin, um, you know Vladimir Putin of Russia and Russia and Russia hasn't done anything criminal of that sort that the Israelis did in Gaza. You see, so it's all turned around and 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 made um, confusing, but you know the people can understand with their own eyes now they, and and the closeness of of the Israeli inv- invasion of Gaza in July and August to this coming up, you know, uh, 9-11 commemoration coming up on Thursday. I hope that it, it kind of helps people focus their mind on the the real nature of the Israeli government, because, you know, many Americans, most Americans have a very rosy view of Israel because they their understanding of Israel has come to them from... Uh, Hollywood and, and watching films and, and, you know, that kind of thing, emotionally laden things. But they don't really understand the nature of the beast. The real nature of the Israeli, of the Israeli state is, is there's nothing rosy about it.
0: Now, you, you mentioned the, uh, the bombing of Gaza. Uh, as soon as they ran out of ammo, uh, the United States government resupplied them with ammunition. So the United States yes. has to be
2: supporting this. Yes, yes, that's a good example of 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 how we have a, a dual policy. Here we have a real two-faced Janus policy because, you know, the Obama administration, the U.S. administration, does not support illegal settlements, does not support the Israeli occupation of Jerusalem, and 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 was condemning. They didn't condemn. They never condemned But they were critical of the Israeli invasion of of Gaza. Yet. And, and we, of course, we're, were signatories to the Nuremberg Charter so that we we should we should not be supporting any state that commits, um, you know, egregious war crimes. But as you said, when, when Israel then went to Gaza and bombed 85%, you know, targets were homes, when they bombed ambulances, when they bombed hospitals, when they bombed schools, all with American planes, all with bombs paid for the U.S. taxpayer, it, instead of, instead of maintaining the policy which I said before, we went and supported all of these things which is contradictory to, to our actual our stated policy. So what that tells you is that the real policy vis-a-vis Israel is completely contrary to the stated policy. that is to say that we are being lied to our government tells us that it, that it supports human rights and peace and you know like they they had, they had John Forbes Kerry John Kerry Going over there, John Kerry was flying back and forth, shuttle diplomacy, uh, supposedly trying to, you know, get some sort of uh, peace deal. But instead of peace, we wound up with an Israeli invasion of Gaza, a murderous uh, Israeli invasion of Gaza, in which 2,000 people were killed, scores and scores of children, hundreds of children. And and yet, as you said, the Israelis then dipped into the arsenal of, of U.S. weapons that the United States had stockpiled there without telling the State Department, without telling the President of the United States. Well, I mean, what, so well what, what do you kind, mean
0: what kind of what how can they dip into an uh, what do you mean well the United States rearmed yeah. them didn't they
2: They did they did but if you you'll see that uh if you look back you'll see that uh it was uh very much criticized by president Obama and the state department because neither the state department nor the uh executive you know the the white house were informed of this um, the Israelis went and, and took from the stockpile. So apparently there was some military-to-military military communication that, that they then put into effect and just took took the weaponry and the bombs that they needed, and the White House and the State Department found out later.
0: Well, and yes, caused, I guess— that caused the rift. I did hear something about this, that they went straight to the Pentagon. Is that what you're talking about?
2: Yeah, it seems that, like I said, it seems like there was a military-to-military agreement, yeah. or the Israelis just went and took them themselves— um, which may be the case, but that the White House and the State Department were not informed until after the fact.
0: Yeah, all of which, you know, I mean, but still, the United States has to be behind the whole thing. I mean, they're supporting it, regardless well, of what we're, they we're, say. We're, we're be,
2: we're behi- yes, we become, we become guilty, guilty by association because, because our failure to stand up for um, the policy that we supposedly state, like, as I said— The Obama administration is is on the record saying that they are opposed to increases in Israeli settlement activity, illegal settlements on the West Bank. Yet, it seems like a month doesn't go by without Netanyahu or the Israeli government announcing more housing, more apartments, more expansion. Most recently, there was a confiscation of land. There was a large confiscation of, of a large piece of land near Jerusalem. The, the government of Israel is going back to the the days when they just expropriate land, they just take land from the people, they just declare it as like a military zone or whatever they want to do, and they seize the land, and they use some sort of Ottoman law from the 1600s or whatever, and and they say this is the law, this is we're going to do it, and they've done it, but but the the Obama administration doesn't do anything, doesn't protest, doesn't doesn't put sanctions on. I mean if If the United States government were serious about peace in the Middle East, if they were serious about resolving the Palestine-Israel conflict, they would put a little muscle behind it as they they're so willing to do against Russia. You know they're sanctioning Russia, they're cutting off um, trade with Russia, yet Israel gets nothing like that. I mean, United States government and European government could just as easily sanction Israel, boycott Israel, call for a you know suspension of trade with Israel. Um, stop giving aid to Israel, et cetera, in order to get them to, you know, compromise and, and make compromises for peace. But that never happens. However, in Europe, there is, there is a growing boycott movement that's being forwarded, promoted by uh, various nations, and it is taking some effect. But until the United States does something like that, we're not going to see any change in the Middle East.
0: Well, yeah, right, and I mean, I, I don't, uh, I can't see how anybody can believe that the United States is behind peace. I mean, look, look what they're doing in Iraq, right. which you've already talked about. They're not looking right. for a, a right. they're not looking for a stable, a peaceful uh, place. They're looking to, uh, uh, well, destroy it all. I guess that's right. I mean, what else? That's right.
2: You... That's 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 right. That's what I say is that 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 like solving 9-11, the deception that changed the world. We are now living through a period in which deception is the main tool but we are the targets of the deception it's not a, it's not a deception is being foisted on the palestinian people or the iraqi people or the afghani people we are the victims of this deception we are the targets of the deception and because we're the ones who have to pay for it we're the ones who have to make sacrifices for it and 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 we're the ones who have to send our sons and daughters and husbands and wives to fight these wars and, and so we have to understand that we are being lied to. You know, Mr. Obama might be very charming and speak very well, but he's not telling us the truth. And the same goes for the whole State Department and the whole upper echelon of the U.S. government. It's just completely based on deception and lies. And 9-11, as I said, is the core, the core crime. It's the Achilles heel of the whole thing, because... You know we can talk about Gaza and Iraq and Ukraine, but when we look at when we look at 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 nine eleven, when we look at what happened in New York City and the Pentagon, that is the Achilles' heel of the whole thing because if we can understand the deception of nine eleven, if we can if we can identify the people who did it, and if we can bring them to trial, if we can if we can bring justice for the victims of nine eleven and if we can if we can you know disabuse ourselves or understand the deception of nine eleven, then the whole the whole thing will unravel. You see, that's the Achilles heel. That's the weakest point. We have every right in the world to demand the truth and the justice for 9/11 because that's a crime that happened in our country and in which our people were killed. So that is where we have to we have to focus our understanding and our efforts because then all these other things will fall into place or they will be they will they will be exposed, you know? That's what will happen.
0: Christopher, you are in California, and you will be present in person at the film festival, won't you?
2: Yes, I'll be there. I've been told that I can have a table uh, where I'll I'll have my books, my Solving 11 books, and I'll be there to talk to people and sell the books. And that is on Thursday, September 11th in Oakland.
0: Give us the name of the companion book to Solving 9-11. What's the second book called?
2: It's Solving 9-11, the original articles, because this is 11 or 12 years of articles that I wrote about 9-11. These are the most important articles about 9-11 because the person who really wants to understand 9-11, they really need to have both books because there's a great deal of information in the original Mm -hmm. articles, details, names, uh, information that they won't find in in the smaller book.
0: Well, Christopher, I look forward to meeting you in person finally at the nine eleven Film Festival this Thursday, September eleventh, at the Grand Lake Theater in Oakland. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you very much, Bonnie. I'll see you there. There's something happening, yeah.
1: yeah, yeah. What it is ain't exactly clear. There's a
0: I've been speaking with Christopher Boleyn. Today's show has been 9-11 and the politics of deception. Christopher Boleyn is an independent researcher, investigative journalist, and author. He has lived and traveled extensively throughout the world, including the Middle East, where he studied the region's history and languages before earning a degree in history from the University of California with an emphasis on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Along with research and writing, he has worked as an editor and translator. He is the author of Solving 9-11, The Deception That Changed the World, and Solving 9-11, The Original Articles. Visit his website at www. Boleyn.com That's bolly dot C-O-M Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yaromako. To leave comments or order copies of shows email us at Faulkner at GunsAndButter.org That's F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at G-U-N-S-A-N-D B-U-T-T-E-R dot O-R-G Visit our website at GunsAndButter.org <laughs>
1: revolution which is the evolution of the mind if you seek then you shall find that we all come from the divine out with a spirit knife trying to steal your life you know what i'm saying look what side yourself for peace give thanks live life and release you dig me you got me